Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The Making of a Mountaineer. This book was originally published in 1924 and written by George Ingle Finch. Climbing a mountain with today's equipment and technology can be challenging enough. It is impressive to hear about how this was done in the early 1900s. My name is Teddy, and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everybody who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. Thank you to Tony234 for your lovely review on iTunes. I'm glad you find the podcast too boring to stay awake to. Thank you to Tyler Benton for your lovely message on Instagram. And thank you also to Recovery Random for reaching out on Instagram and for including me in your recommended sleep podcasts. Finally, thank you to KIS813 for your review on Podcast Addict. As always, I am extremely grateful to all the patrons, supporters and anchor sponsors who support the show financially with a monthly contribution. I am able to bring out this podcast to those who need it because of the support from people like you. Whether it is $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes to those who need them. If you find the podcast beneficial, please subscribe and share it with a friend or someone who needs a good night's rest. You can always say hello to me at boytosleep.com. In the meantime... Lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The Making of a Mountaineer by George Ingle Finch Man's heritage is great. There are the mountains. He may climb them. Mountaineering is a game second only to the greatest and best of all man's games. Life. The war all but dried up the steady stream of youthful and enthusiastic devotees who kept alive and fresh the pursuit of mountain craft. But fresh blood is as essential to the healthy life of mountaineering as it is to any other game, craft or pursuit, and fortunately, There are cheerful signs that the after-effects of the war are fast becoming spent. Our youth is beginning to find the dancing floor, 
the tennis court and the playing fields of Great Britain, too narrow, too lacking in scope, perhaps also a little bit too soft, and the craving grows for wider fields and a sterner, freer pastime. It is primarily for the members of the younger generation that this book has been written in the hopes that, by affording them a glimpse of the adventurous joys to be found in the mountains, they may be encouraged to take up and try for themselves the pursuit of mountaineering. Portions of chapters 2 and 6 have appeared in the Climbers Club Journal, chapter 8 in the British Ski Yearbook, and chapters 9 and 10 in the Alpine Journal. Where not otherwise stated, the illustrations are from photographs by the author. In conclusion, I would like to thank Captain T.G.B. Forster for the loan of four photographs, Mr. A.B. Brin for one photograph, Mr. R.H.K. Pito for the pen and ink sketch of the east face of Monterossa and the drawing of an ice axe, my brother for chapter eight, and last but not least, my wife for her contribution, chapter seven, and for the tireless pains she has taken in assisting me with the preparation and correction of the manuscript and proofs. I also wish to place on record my appreciation of what I owe to the inspiration and example of the Alpine Journal and of Mr. Geoffrey Winthrop Young and to the inspiring influence of Miss P. Broom. Chapter 1. Early Days Some 22 years ago, on a dewy spring morning in October, I urged my panting pony towards a hilltop in the Australian bush, the better to spy out the whereabouts of a mob of wallaby, the last few feet of the ascent being too much for the pony, I dismounted and, leaving him behind, scrambled up a short, rocky chimney to the summit. The wallaby were nowhere to be seen, but my wandering eyes were held spellbound by such a vision as I had never even dreamed of. Miles and miles away, the whitewashed roofs of the township of Orange gleamed brightly in the clear morning sunshine. The main roads converging upon the town showed sharp and distinct from out their setting in the rolling bush. The picture was beautiful, precise and accurate as the work of a draftsman pen but fuller of meaning than any map. I was just 13 years old, and for the first time in my life, the true significance of geography 
began to dawn upon me. And with the dawning was born a resolution that was to colour and widen my whole life. Before returning to my pony after this, my first mountain ascent, I had made up my mind to see the world, to see it from above, from the tops of mountains, whence I could get that wide and comprehensive view, which is denied to those who observe things from their own plane. A year later, my brother Maxwell and I, now proud possessors of Edward Wimper's scrambles in the Alps, emulated our hero's early exploits by scaling Beachy Head by a particularly dangerous route, much to the consternation of the lighthouse crew and subsequent disappointment of the coast guards who arrived up aloft with ropes and rescue tackle just in time to see us draw ourselves muddy and begrimed over the brink of the cliff into safety. That climb taught us many things, amongst them that a cliff is often more difficult to climb than would appear from below, that flints embedded in chalk are not reliable handholds, but sometimes break away when one trusts one's weight to them. That there are people who delight in rolling stones down a cliff without troubling to see whether anyone is underneath, and that if it be good to look down upon the world, the vision is beautiful in proportion to the difficulties overcome in gaining the eminence. A few weeks later, an ascent of Notre Dame by an unorthodox route might well have led to trouble, had it not been for the fact that the two gendarmes and the kindly priest, who were the most interested spectators of these doings, did not lack a sense of humour and human understanding. That winter, we broke bounds, shod in the lightest of shoes, with clothing ill-suited to protect against wind, with walking sticks and a pocket full of sandwiches, we took the train to Wesson. There we bought a map and set off to climb the spear, a mountain barely 6,000 feet in height, but nevertheless a formidable enough proposition for such an ill-equipped party in winter. All that day we struggled on, often knee-deep in snow, at dusk still far from our goal. We sought refuge from the cold breezes of eventide, letting ourselves in through the chimney hole in the roof of a snowed-up alp hut. We bivalked for the night. Shivering and sleepless, we lay, watching the stars as they twinkled derisively in frosty clearness through the hole in the roof. After what seemed an eternity, morning came, 
and we plodded on with stiff and weary limbs to the summit. There, bathed in the warm sunshine, all hardships were forgotten and we gazed longingly over to the ranges of the Toady and Glanish, real snow and ice mountains with great glaciers streaming down from their lofty crests. Thence the eye travelled away to the rich plains, the gleaming lakes and dark forested hills of the lowlands, until details faded in the bluish mist of distance. Switzerland, a whole country, was at our feet. This escapade taught us further lessons, that mountaineering is a hungry game, that boots should be waterproof, and soles thick and studded with nails, that a thick warm coat can be an almost priceless possession. Then came a glorious summer vacation of fishing and sailing around the coast of Majorca, with hours of splendid clamouring on the cliffs of Miramar, followed by a week without Tudor. Our Tudor was a sportsman, and we scrambled about together to our heart's content, more than one sailing as close to the wind as any of us have ever done since. And yet again we had learned something, that the stockinged foot finds a firmer hold on dry limestone than a nailed boot, that wet limestone slabs are slippery and an abomination to be avoided, that the thrusting muscles of one's legs are more powerful and more enduring than the pulling muscles of one's arms, and that the strong fingers are of more use in climbing than a pair of well-developed biceps. More holidays came and went. Summers passed on the shores of the western Mediterranean, but Christmas vacations spent in Grindelwald and devoted to learning the art of skiing. In Grindelwald, we had the good fortune to win the liking of old Christian Jossie, in his day one of the greatest guides and best step cutters in the Alps. He took us to the upper Grindelwald glacier, and on its mighty ice pinnacles, taught us the elements of step cutting in ice, and the use of the rope. He showed us how to fashion a stairway in hard blue ice, the floor of each step sloping inwards, so that it was easy for one to stand securely. He showed us the points by which to judge of the merits of a good axe, how to hold and use it, and how, imitating him, to cut good safe steps with a minimum number of blows and expenditure of labour. He showed us how easy it is to check a slip and hold up a man on the rope, provided it be kept always taut from man to man. And he did not hesitate to rub in, 
by demonstrations accompanied by much forceful language. What a fearful snare the rope could be if it were improperly used and permitted to be trailed loose and in coils between the various members of a party. He also pointed out some of the many varieties of snow, some good in which on even the steepest slopes a kick or two sufficed to make a reliable step, others which could not be trusted on any but the gentlest of slopes, and needing only a touch to start slithering down with an insidious hissing sound to form an avalanche which would sweep away everything. Last but not least, Christian Jossie instilled into us some of his own fervid love of the mountains and of mountain adventure. The summer holidays of 1906 drew nigh. Our longing for mountain adventure was no longer to be denied, and elders and betters had perforce to give way, but they enforced two provisos. We were to be accompanied by guides, and climbing was to be restricted to the lesser Alps of northern Switzerland. We climbed a few lesser summits, all about 10,000 feet high. On none was there climbing where hands as well as feet were required, and not once did we see the axe used to cut a step. Efforts to wheedle our stalwart guardians into attacking the bold pyramid, always provocatively before our eyes, failed miserably. They had their instructions, but they could not always keep us in sight, and more than once, stealing forth alone, we found good climbing, adventure and untrammeled fun and the desire to climb without guides was born in us. That winter, the lesser peaks and passes of Grindelwald were visited on skis. A stern effort to gain the Storwalk Pass was frustrated by a snowstorm, in the teeth of which for 19 hours on end, we fought our way back to Grindelwald. Having learnt that, with map and compass, and given your bearings, bad weather in the mountains can be faced, and even enjoyed if you only keep on moving, and do not get flurried. We also knew now that boots should be large enough to enable two pairs of woolen socks to be worn without pinching the foot and that toe caps should be high and roomy so as to not interfere with the circulation. A sweater worn underneath a windproof jacket of sailcloth was found to be both lighter and much warmer than heavy tweeds, through which the wind could blow, and to which the snow would stick. From 1907 onwards until 1911, Max and I both studied in Zurich and were thus thrown into close and continual contact with the mountains, 
from which we were separated only by some three or four hours by rail. Barely a weekend went by without our taking train to the mountains and climbing. During the Easter holidays of 1907, we betook ourselves on skis up to the Clarendon Hut, one of the many little shelters built by the Swiss Alpine Club in the heart of the mountains. These huts are furnished with straw-filled sleeping bunks, blankets, a small cooking stove, a supply of wood, and cooking and eating utensils. We had with us provisions for a week, during the whole of which period the weather was fine, and snow conditions at their best. We climbed almost all the surrounding summits. The return to the hut each evening, taking the form of an effortless run on skis over the Clarendon Glacier. During the summer vacation of the same year, Max and I successfully obtained carte blanche to climb without guides, and for nearly three months we roamed in and about the range of the toddy. We climbed most of the summits in the range, including the toddy itself which, with its 11,800 feet of altitude, was much the highest mountains so far grappled with. We always endeavoured to exercise every possible attention to the following out of the lessons hitherto learnt, losing no opportunity as acquiring fresh knowledge regarding matters of equipment, the handling of rope and axe, and the mountains themselves. In particular, we aimed at cultivating a sense of route finding and teaching ourselves how to use the map. The winter of that year saw us embarking upon expeditions of a more ambitious nature than those previously attempted. Up to the Easter of 1908, our most successful winter feat was an ascent of the Sustenhorn on skis, but during that vacation we accomplished the ascent of the Toddy, a winter expedition that even today is reckoned by no means a simple undertaking. As the summer holidays approached, a still more ambitious program was drawn up. Our self-assurance, confidence, call it what you like, seems to have been boundless. For we now considered that our apprenticeship had been sufficiently long to justify us, letting in ambitions soar into reality. The program, although not carried out in its entirety, nevertheless proved a great success. Beginning with the Bernice Oberland, we climbed the Wetter Horn, were driven back by storm just below the summit of the Eager, but followed up the reverse by climbing the Monch, Jungfrau, thence making our way down to the Alec Glacier to the Rhone Valley, 
we went up to Zermatt. From there we climbed the Matterhorn and the Dent Blanche, then crossed over to the Arola, where for the first time we experienced to the full the pleasures of traversing a mountain, that is, ascending by one route and descending by another. Amongst others were traversed the Aguil de Lazare, the Aguil de Rolla, and the Pinier de Rolla. The ascent of the last named was made by cutting steps up the steep north face, and it was this climb more than any other that won me over to the delights of ice climbing. Returning to Zermatt by various high-level passes, we journeyed northwards and wound up the season in the Toddy district, where all the major summits were traversed. Thus, from its chances, nucleus on the hilltop in the Australian bush, snowball-wise the zest for the mountains grew until has actually become an integral part of life itself. The health and happiness that the passion has brought with it are as incalculable as the ways of the divinity that shapes our ends, chooses our parents for us, and places us in a certain environment. The love that Max and I have for the mountains I cannot but attribute to the fact that we were possessed of a father who taught us from our earliest years to love the open spaces of the earth, encouraged us to seek adventure and provided the wherewithal for us to enjoy the quest and above all looked to us to fight our own battles and rely on our own resources. It was really the very thing that we had been looking for. The Christmas vacation of 1908 was just over. A few months ago, Max and I made the acquaintance of Alf Bonvie Bryn, a Norwegian who, like ourselves, was studying in Zurich, bound together by the common bond of enthusiasm for the mountains. The acquaintance rapidly ripened into friendship, and many were the pleasant evenings spent in each other's rooms. The topic of conversation was always the same, mountaineering. Gradually, our thoughts turned from other mountain groups more and more towards the Himalayas, and we decided some day to combine forces and carry out an expedition to this greatest of the world's mountain ranges. As far as actual climbing was concerned, we considered that the Alps as a training ground for Himalayan exploration could not be bettered. But in one thing, which would do much to make or mar the success of an exploring venture in these distant ranges, 
we could look to the Alps for little assistance. That was organisation, particularly with respect to food and equipment. In the Alps, a mistake or omission of detail in either of these things can be remedied by a descent into the valley, involving a loss of not more than a day or so of climbing time, but for the Himalayas, we judged that it would be essential to have everything that one would want with. Mistakes or omissions would not be easily rectified after one had left one's base, usually the last outpost of civilization, and even as such devoid of many of the necessities of mountaineering. From the base onwards, one would have to rely entirely on one's own resources. These considerations drove us to a decision to spend the Easter vacation in some remote part of Europe. Switzerland would be our advanced base, and the chosen field of our activities, a wilder territory to which we would not look for supplies of either food or equipment. Where was such a territory to be found? The more remote mountains of Norway were ruled out on account of the earliness of the season. Considerations of distance and therefore of time and expense militated against our going to the Sierra Nevada or the Balkans our mental state was one of puzzled despair until by chance the little guidebook of Corsica insinuated itself into my attention. Early in March 1909, we set to work to put our equipment in order, making sleeping bags in a tent and buying tinned foods. The latter were selected with a view to nourishing value, variety, compactness, and minimum of weight. By the middle of the month, our preparations were almost complete. A few days afterwards, Bryn and I set off for Corsica, leaving Max, whose studies kept him in Zurich for the time being to join us at a later date. We travelled by rail through St. Gothard via Milan and Genoa to Leghorn, embarking there for Bastia. The five-hour crossing on a crazy little cargo boat was rough and uncomfortable, and we both dwelt at some length and much with feeling upon the foolishness of setting out on our little expedition instead of spending the holidays in comparative luxury in Switzerland. But when, at sunset, loomed up the snow-capped summits of the bold mountain chain that forms the backbone of the long promontory of Cap Corse, our optimism returned. The first difficulties of landing were those created by custom officials. 
on explaining quite frankly the object of our visit. However, they informed us ecstatically that Corsica was the most beautiful country in the world and that we would be sure to enjoy our stay there and passed our stores free of duty. Such patriotism created a first good impression of the inhabitants, which we saw no reason later to alter. The Corsicans received us with nothing but the utmost kindness throughout our stay on the island. The following day was spent in purchasing maps and drawing up plans. According to the maps, Calacutia appeared to be the Zermatt of Corsica. So to Calacutia, we forwarded most of our stores, leaving the greater part of the remainder in the simple little auberge, the Hotel de Voyage, which was our headquarters in Bastia, we set out to walk and climb over the whole length of the range of the mountains in the promontory of Cap Corse. Though none of these peaks exceed 4,300 feet in height, nevertheless, owing to the close proximity of the sea, they appear high, but their chief appeal to us was that they afforded magnificent views into the mountains of the northwest interior of the island, where we expected to find the best climbing. The main group's centre round Monte Cinto, which rising to 8,900 feet above sea level, is the highest summit to Corsica, Standing well away to the north of the main mass was one bold rock needle that attracted our attention. With the aid of compass and map, we identified this point as being Capo al Dente, a peak some 7,000 feet in altitude, and decided to lay siege to it before going to Calacutia especially as we had every reason to believe that it had not been climbed. Back again in Bastia, we packed up our remaining stores, sufficient for ten days, and took train to Palasca, a station on the line between Bastia and Calvi. In Palasca, we were fortunate in securing the services of a mule and his driver. I say fortunate, for our knapsacks containing sleeping bags, spare clothing, ropes, cooking apparatus, cameras and food weighed over 80 pounds each. The mule proved more than willing than his master. Our way to Val Tardagine, at the head of which the Capo al Dente lies, led over a number of passes, the crossing of which involved a good deal of uphill and downdale walking. The mule driver's strength never seemed equal to any of the rises, 
as he would still persist in sitting on the mule. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the story. I also hope you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy to Sleep podcast. Until next time, good night.